<laughs> hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity Podcast. I have the distinguished, honored, privileged, everything under the sun, uh, you know, guest here with me today, obviously, uh, Mr. David Holiday. And I just want to say thank you, David, for being here and taking some time to, to chat. And we were just yeah. speaking a second ago before I clicked the record button about how what my intentions of this podcast were. And I was saying, I want to give people things that I didn't have growing up. Um, and that to me was when I got to a survival school, I wanted to hear stories. I wanted to hear everything. And I think I wanted to hear mostly about that person who was teaching me. Hmm. And yeah. I, I don't know why, but I was like, I just go curious about what brought you to this place to be here to teach something so ancient yet so contemporary. We all need it. Uh, a lot of things happened, but I can just start at the beginning if you want. Like Let's the first start time the I beginning. remember wanting to do this. Yeah. Well, what's your what's your name? Who are uh, you? My Where? name's David Holiday. I was born in, in Tucson. Grew up just outside of Tucson place called Flowing Wells Irrigation District, and then it, it, it got incorporated and became part of town. So by the time I was a seventh grader, we were, you know, we had pavement and town and all that. But I remember as a little kid, it was a long ways to the nearest pavement from our house, and we were about three miles outside the city limits, I think. And then the next thing I know, you know, by seventh grade, we're pretty pretty surrounded by trailer parks and subdivisions. And that same place where our little farmhouse slash, you know, we had peach orchards and alfalfa and a few cattle and she had sheep and chickens and irrigation ditches all around. We had a lot of neighbors that were still into agriculture. There weren't any, no pavement, no no grocery stores in any, any big way. And then they just slowly started putting in grocery stores and then, increasing the size of the subdivisions or trailer parks. The next thing you know, where my house is now or where that house we used to live in is now 21 miles or more inside the city limits of Tucson. So we watched a lot of pristine, beautiful farm and desert country outside of Tucson just turn into mile after mile of subdivisions and trailer parks and industrial parks. And so like where our peach or an almond orchard was, there's like an auto zone and a parking lot and a doctor's office and apartment complexes. You know, people just, including my own family, my grandpa and everybody, we, they just slowly sold off chunks of everything to, to the modernization. They shut off everybody's irrigation water under the pretense that they were uh, uh, open ditches were a health hazard and the city incorporated all the water out of the Flowing Wells Irrigation District and now, you know, it's an ugly, ugly part of Tucson. Man. It's a really ugly, not so uh, pretty part of the world. And so uh, that idea that we were wrecking this place uh, started getting in my heart kind of early on. So by first grade, I was pretty discouraged about what the directions we were all heading. But one of the things that was magical that happened is before I think they even paved Flying Wolves Road, they built an elementary school called Walter Douglas Elementary. And it was a pretty neat school. Was, all the buildings were round and they had neat, like, pizza-sliced-shaped rooms. And it's a pretty neat school. But uh, they built a sidewalk on the other side of Flowing Walls Road so that people in this brand-new trailer park could walk to class without being in the mud because it was still... A lot of irrigation water would escape, and or when it rained, all everything would turn into mud. So they built a sidewalk for the kids. Well, that crosses a lot of, of uh, sewer pipes and lots of other stuff. So a lot of ditches were dug, a lot of construction that summer. Well, by the time school starts, it had rained a lot. We get great monsoons, and the rain had washed away a bunch of the dirt from all that ditches and construction around that sidewalk. So my first day of first grade. If I remember right, pretty sure it was first grade because I was going to Mona Dayton's class and that was first grade. Okay, she was my first grade teacher. I'm walking along and I see a shell in the mud. And the shell 
is the kind of shell that I recognized from when we go to on our we went on our vacations. We'd go to the beach in uh, Mexico, and I recognized it as one of those clam shells that we'd see on the beach in Mexico. So I pick it up, and I'm rubbing the dirt off, and it's carved into a shell frog. It's a frog carved out of a seashell, and it's beautiful. And I'm walking along. And I get to my first grade teacher and I said, how'd they do this? And she said, I don't know. We don't know. And that afternoon I came home and talked to my dad, who was a pretty smart guy. And he said, I don't know, David. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't, as a scientist, you know, we don't really know. So uh, he was very uh, ethically minded, you know, guy. And I uh, talked and read science books constantly. He was a pretty smart man minored in archaeology, majored in agricultural business, and just knew a lot about biology and everything, science. And he said, we don't really know. So I thought, well, my dad doesn't know and my teacher doesn't know. Those Indians must have been magic. So I began to want to know how people did things because I tried to go home and I got a nail, I got a knife, I got a hacksaw blade. I couldn't touch that shell. Or make any kind, it would just leave gray lines on it like the metal was coming off on the, like the shell was harder than the, than the nail. And so that started a, a series of questions early on in life. How did people do things before electricity and uh, metal? And then I, <clears throat> my dad had, I think, a grinder or somebody had a grinder. So I put a seashell to one of those grinders and it just blew up. Like it got so hot that the shell popped. I said, well, mm. they weren't doing it. Obviously, they weren't doing it like that with a carborundum wheel. But I couldn't figure stuff out, but I wanted it so bad. And so by the time I was in my 30s, jumping way forward, I was one of the few people in the modern American world that, that had a real clear idea of how a lot of things got done. And then by the time I was 33, I got invited to a gathering called Rabbit Stick. And I met lots of other archaeologists and people that were extremely interested in the subject matter and had learned a lot of those techniques. But a major jump start, and I'll go back to age 12. I'm in Guatemala. Our family's working in a humanitarian service project in a little village called Cunen, Guatemala. And my dad's the project director and I think there's a Canadian nurse working in the clinic there. And she has a, a book called The Whole Earth Catalog. And I wanted to know how people came to be. Like, how, how, do, how are we born? What, what, do, what do we look like when we're babies? What do our moms look like when they're birthing us? I was like really extremely interested, but I was afraid people would think that was dirty or something if they saw me looking at pictures of women having babies. And so I'd look through this whole earth catalog in the midwifery section, and I'd go in the closet, the medicine closet of that clinic, so nobody see me looking at you know naked bodies, thinking maybe that was improper, right? And one day I'm looking through there and I see a poem by a guy, a man, an, an author named Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry is, uh, I don't know who he is, but he's written a poem called Think Little. And Think Little is also one of the poems in a book that he's written or a series of poems called Mad Farmer Manifesto. And it was pretty hip and cool to be angry about something in the 60s and protest the war and everything else. But it was also meaningful. But when you're a little kid, you just you just want to do what's right. And when I heard that he was a farmer that was mad about the way the earth's going and thought we should do a better job of taking care of the earth, well, that was my thing. I was already an eco-raider before it was even had a name. When I saw what they were doing to the desert around our house, I began to do a little bit of my own vandalism based on a lot of things and so uh, mostly just anger <clears throat> pretty unproductive but i thought i was doing something to end the vietnam war and the destruction of the earth by vandalizing schools and gas stations or whatever i somehow i was a, a little kid who had a cause to wreck all modern infrastructure so that we could go back to a healthier planet I don't think it works like that, but back then that was my way. So 
uh, I'm in Guatemala. I'm kind of not having that bad vibe anymore. I'm happy. I'm learning new culture. And I see this book uh, on how to make arrowheads in there by Larry Dean Olson in the same catalog. Because mm. I decided if, 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 I, if there's good poetry like that, and if there's good information on midwifery, what else is in here? So I begin to not just look at pictures. I begin to read, and I, I came across a line drawing of a fish spear and lots of other things, and a book called Outdoor Survival Schools, Skills by Larry Dean Olson. I went back to the area where we lived in that little town, and I found my dad, and I said, and he was a Marine Corps colonel. I never asked a penny for him before or since. He's helped me out a few times, but I didn't ask. I've never asked my father for money except one time. He's 12 years old, and I was afraid to ask him because the average man in Guatemala in those days was making 25 cents a day and could barely feed his family. And these are 16-hour days working hard in cornfields with hoes. So I thought, how can I ask my father for $7 and something cents to order a book out of this catalog? That's more than a week's wages for an adult male in, the, in this village of starving people. But I got my courage up and I asked my dad for the money to order this book. And I remember him being pretty formal. My dad sometimes could get pretty formal. He says, David, a book, eh? I think that's a wise investment. And he gave me the money. And we get home, like six months later, I back to the United States, I get my book. I start practicing everything in it. But the first thing I wanted to know how to do is make arrowheads. Because in Guatemala, I'd seen, in Mexico, I'd seen tons of artifacts, plus at home in the United States in Tucson Valley. And I just always wanted to know how they were made. Well, I began to learn things. So like back to my 30s, I finally get invited to a big gathering. I, I was working at Boulder Outdoor Survival School for for like the end of the season with Dave Westcott as as just a friend of his. And then I got a job as a instructor and then he invites me to come to rabbit stick and that's when i at age 33 i think i met my family my people lots of other people are extremely interested in how how things worked before this and i don't know what the deep meaning was for others about why you would want to go backwards in your technological skills but i didn't think it was backwards i actually believed it was a uh, a viable process to figure out how to maybe rethink our our not so smart forward uh, blind rush into destruction. Mm -hmm. And so lots of things had shaped my mind, especially when they shot John F. Kennedy. I remember that day I wept. When they shot Martin Luther King, I wept. And when the, we they told us that we could dr kill ourselves many times over with atomic bombs, I wept as a little kid. And so I just got like, what are we doing or what direction are we going? What can I do? What do I think would make the best world? And I thought, maybe we should step back, which Wendell Barry, Barry turns out was thinking the same thing in terms of horse farming instead of tractor farming. Mm -hmm. How can we make this a more verdant, healthy world and not just just do whatever's most convenient, but maybe do what's healthy for the... And the true convenience in the long run would be health and joy. So a lot of talk like that in the 60s. And as a little kid, I'm, I'm believing it. Yeah. So I got into Stone Age living skills, and I wanted to learn everything in that book, not to teach it or talk about it. That's like a real step down from my original plan. I was going to go do it. So all I needed was sufficient skills to eat and build shelter and take care of myself. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I hadn't really told anybody what I was doing. Few of my church friends I told, but I didn't tell anybody at school that I made arrowheads and was trying to learn how to live off the land. Uh, my, well, I told my friend Armando Diaz. He, he was like one of my sacred buddies. I loved Armando and I told a few people on the cross-country team. I showed them my arrowheads and stuff, but I just, you know, it just was weird. Everybody else is doing something else, and so I didn't come out of the closet until I was pretty old about being a, a, a closet Aboriginal. Did when they, I came out, I came out in the open and showed myself off. Finally, when I 
met Larry Olson in college, and then I really went for it at, at Rabbit Stick. Started wearing a buckskin kilt, no shirt, no shoes, and just being as close to the earth as I could with no barriers between me and life, the natural world. And uh, that kind of brings us to today where people are, people are still inspired about the ideas but they're also inspired that maybe living this way kind of makes a healthier human, right? It's like maybe it's not about going back and living in the Stone Age. Maybe it's about just connecting every once in a while with our ancestry and who, who we really are internally, what our spirit really needs to be fed by. And not everybody gets fed that way. There's a lot of different ways to do that. But there's a big group of us, enough of us, that there's a movement now where we're considering this a really healthy pattern and we're watching what's happening to us as a group, the we part, we are kind of healthier and better off than we were before. And we recognize that. So getting connected to the natural world and finding out, and some people need to find out, well, what will it do for me? Well, that's the front door, but that isn't what's really inside. It's always done everything for us. We are a product of all the molecules on this planet. Nature has produced all those things. Humans have produced none of those things. That's true. So we, 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 we can only use stuff and wear it out and wreck it, but we can't make it. We haven't been able to copy it yet. There's groups like Biosphere 2 that have to go kill lots of organisms in order to maintain the pretense that they're creating a viable biosphere. But the reason they call it Biosphere 2 is because number one is the planet we're on. And they know that we can't go anywhere very far out into space until we can figure out how to make water and oxygen. So they're trying to figure out how to make water and oxygen, and they're failing. The best scientists in the world can't figure out how to make a viable uh, ecosystem that will travel so that we probably won't get very far off the planet until we figure out how to create oxygen and water. Yeah. Doesn't or at least farm in a way that creates enough. To, to, and then get no breaches in your spaceship because then you're dead. Right. Just like in the old days, you're trying to cross the ocean. You got to get enough water stored. You could run out of food for 70, 80 days, 100 days. But you had to have enough water to get where you're going. And if you couldn't store that much, you couldn't go because you can't make water while you're traveling. So until we figured out how to carry enough water, we didn't travel long distances so that goes back to our stone age past again baskets clay pots we had to store water so we're still in the same not only do we have to store it now we have to make it while we're traveling or we'll never get very far because if it takes five years to get there we can't carry that much worth of water so we got to get to a spring so talking like that I don't want to go that direction. I, I'm more interested in being healthy and happy and loving the people I'm with. So my world's shrunk down to thinking I'm going to really go live out there, to thinking, well, people ask me about it, and I have some information, and it seems to be wanted. So I'm useful. And now in my old age, it's more like, I can answer the questions, but I'm really more interested in the person I'm talking to right now. Like, you're more important to me than my story. I'm answering your question because you asked, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's a long, that's the long, long condensed version, meaning I could go a lot longer about all the things that occurred to me. Yeah. But I got here to this day at this table at this gathering basically by finding that seashell and a few other great people in my life, you know, that, that brought me along the way. Dev West, uh, Larry Dean Olson's a big one. Zeke Sanchez is a big one. But after that, Dave Westcott was my mentor on learning how to teach. And then a woman named Jody Simmons hired me, and I taught for Tucson Unified School Districts for five years. Arizona history, prehistory, flora and fauna. And I got way into learning about the Southwest and the animals and plants and cultures. Uh, <clears throat> and then I had lots of Navajo foster brothers. I met lots of people over my lifetime that are, you know, O'odham and, and Apache or... or uh, Dene of you know Apache Dene and Navajo Dene and Paiutes and lots of people just taught me what the what they knew because they liked me. 
I didn't ask questions and I wasn't looking for information. But they saw something in me that they liked. They began to be my friends. Yeah, a lot of Yaquis, a lot, a lot of Yaquis at my school, a tribe of people, the Yoeme from northern Sonora or central Sonora. And they seemed to like me when I was in high school. Uh, I liked them. We seemed to have a lot of things in common. What we like to do is what, you know, we like to do the same things. We like to get out of town and go for runs in the wild. So I began to try to add to who, who influenced me. My grandparents were into the natural world on both sides. We're from pioneer families that got out west way before the average, I would call uh, light-skinned European groups. There were some Moorish and Spanish people that showed up early, uh, and they came earlier than we did. But as far as uh, Americans, we're, our family's one of the first groups of Americans that brought their wives and kids to stay. There were a lot of pioneer types that were looking for gold and mining. So my family came out to Arizona in you know the 1870s when it wasn't safe yet. Geronimo was still doing his thing. Apaches were still taking people out. One of my dad's cousin, uncles, great uncles, was the first Mormon to get, get uh, killed by Apaches. Like, like we're almost proud of that. Like, it's too bad, but yeah. we were out there interfacing, and uh, he always said they're great people. You shouldn't be afraid of them. Turns out that the Apache that killed him wasn't even considered to be a good person by the Apaches. I think his, I think his name was Dutchy or Mickey Free, or something like that. Some some really bad person who was was kind of a freak and killed everybody. He killed Apaches and whites equally. He was just kind of one of those mentally ill, mm -hmm. ill kids. They say that because he was white, his Apache mother threw him away. And the white people didn't want to be around him, and he didn't want to be around white people so much. And so he didn't fit in either side. He felt abandoned. So when he got older, he decided to just take Apaches and whites out equal number so the first guy to get killed in our family by an apache wasn't really killed by an apache he was killed by a, a a mutant according to the apaches yeah and a misfit according to the so i mean even that is kind of an odd story uh the kid sees one of my everyone's telling my great great uncle or whatever don't go out there by yourself he was taking i think loads of supplies to the apaches from from uh safford to fort thomas or something and his relatives kept saying, don't go out there by yourself. He goes, no, these are great people. They're misunderstood. These are great people. I love these people. And so one day this kid rides into his camp at, at dusk, as the story goes, and said, hey, nice pistol. So he handed him the pistol. The kid shot him in the gut and rode off with his pistol. Well, he lived for four days after that and died of peritonitis. So that's a side story. But that's another thing. My family was always keeping stories. So some of the blockages to being current and living on the earth and getting being with the people I'm around some days is figuring out what not to say because I got thousands and thousands and thousands of bits of information about this life. The older I get, the more I get. So I can tell you about our family's early history from stories I heard, and I bet you half of them are mis- represented because i'm only remembering what i heard and i have five older brothers who can tell me that everything i say is like off a lot or a whole lot or who told you that so we all got it all five of us or six of us all together have a slightly different story of how it went and who did what but we have a long we're all pretty wordy we all know how to communicate well and express our feelings and our ideas and so uh getting back to what I'm doing here is I've become kind of an old man who people want to learn stories from now. So yeah. I was the doer of the word when I was young and strong and healthy like Philip, right? And now I'm kind of the storyteller about how things used to, used to be or could be or I got concepts and ideas. So I'm still wanted in the outdoor skills world and I can still go out on the land and do it. I mean, the reason Philip respects me is because i taking him on the trail and he's like oh not only can he talk he can actually do stuff and so i'm i'm not dead yet but i think i'm more wanted for my character and my stories than i am for my my skills my my capacities so i'm still here but at this gathering 
I'm specifically because Scott really likes me, and I really like Scott, and Philip really likes me, and Jonathan really likes me. Oh yeah, I'm banging the <laughs> table. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, uh, my friends here like me, and they say, you know, please come out. So specifically, this chair right here. I'm here because you asked me to come off the land and come in here and and uh, answer some questions. So is that too long of an answer? No. Okay. Not at all. That's what brought me to this one, and so I'm known in this world of of this this mini club of of outdoor enthusiasts who want to use rock sticks and bones as a person who who still knows how to do it, and I can, but I married somebody who you know I met on the trail who doesn't want to do that all day, and all of my kids don't, and my first wife didn't want to, so I've paid for houses and cars car insurance and groceries most of my life with rock sticks and bones for people who don't really care about all that stuff. None of my kids are into this. They're all pretty good at it if they want to be, especially the boys. And they love nature. They don't want to be like their dad. I, I married a woman from northern Mexico, and my the kids from Gloria, they all kind of like, he's on, he's interesting, but he's kind of a nut, you know. Yeah. Maybe my next group of boys will grow up thinking the same thing. That I'm, what I'm thrilled about doesn't have necessarily bug my kids, but it doesn't thrill them. So I'm, I love it when somebody cares uh, about this subject matter, and that's the main thing. That's where Philip and I and a lot of other people really bond. Is there's a lot of people out there right now who are trying to be seen and known and get famous by acting smarter, being being cool, and we kind of lost cool a long time ago on our efforts to be good at something we became geeks and freaks misfits so we we were doing this we were doing this before it was hip and before tv made us look like we're up to something so i'm glad to be on a podcast because i think tv basically sucks yeah i'll say it to the world it's the most ingenuous industry i've ever had to interface with and i was so excited originally when they first said we're gonna get to show the world what we're really doing every one of them was lying in advance saying oh yeah oh yeah knowing like a spider to a fly that they were going to take out all the real stuff and lie about what's going on and that makes me sad yeah even alone and they can sue me for this but i never signed a contract even alone misrepresents what's actually going on they leave out all the cool things that these people are doing and they show them having problems and they play music that sounds makes it sound dangerous and they fudge meaning they misrepresent the real story so so far nobody's truly represented the primitive skills movement or the outdoor living skills movement or the earth skills movement or the ancestral skills movement whichever your politically correct mind allows you to receive what do you think about les stroud he's the one that did the real thing I have been a consultant for him many times and he's been a good friend of mine ever since because we agree on one thing. Honesty and truth is way more exciting than than false stories. He got fried too. He's not very happy about that whole process. We got to be the ones in the early days who got mashed up. Now Callie and Wania and some of them girls, they kind of got through without getting you know, their heads bit off by the saber tooth but most of us guys are pretty wounded and thrown in the garbage when they're done with us so i don't know how it's going to work out but i keep hoping somebody will come along and tell the truth from the get-go and let us show what we're really capable of doing because if those shows would have come around when i was 20 i'd have been the dummy that said yay let's do it and i'd have jumped all the way in like cody and them did and matt and regardless of what they say in public, I know when they got chewed up and spit out by liars. Yeah. So I think television's going to lose in the long run. And I know more people watch big-time wrestling than college wrestling or Olympic wrestling. But if you take any of those Olympic wrestlers and put them in the ring, they will beat the snot out and throw them out of the ring in the first 30 seconds. <laughs> so real people aren't getting rich and famous liars are well that's how babylon works yeah so if i'm not on a political rant that's bothering anybody i hope you get this <laughs> the most money in the world is made by the biggest liars 
So I finally told all these people that kept coming. They still call me on the phone. I said, oh, well, if, bot- if the bottom line is the dollar, then I think you should sell drugs and pornography and weapons because the most money in the world is being made by, the, by addictions to killing and sex and drugs. Oh, well, no, we don't want to do that. We just want to, we got to reach the people and we got to sometimes have to tell a little story to get them to listen. I said, well, why don't you just show the real thing? Mm-hmm. Takes it. I mean, you don't have to pay for film anymore. It's all electrical impulses. So just take a year's worth of stuff and cut it down to a half hour show. Well, we don't have the time. It's, it's, time, it's time constraints. Okay, then keep lying and keep showing crappy stuff and people will eventually quit watching your format. That's what I'm praying but I think that what's going on with television is people are vicariously living life. Well, so, they don't get out and do anything, so they're sitting on the couch letting somebody else do it for them, yeah, just like you said. So, exactly. exactly. So if you're That's kid- sad. I don't want to be the guy that encourages them to watch my show. Well, but they want to experience that same thing. Because when you get into a car, and then you drive to work, and then you sit in an office, where are the sensory inputs? Where's the heightened chemical releases of adrenaline, of fear, of all those when things? When the rattlesnake strikes at you, you don't have to jump back. When you're well, in your truck, you just run it over and smash its head in. Yeah, yeah the only... the only, And don't even know you did it. The only form that's going to come to that is getting pulled over by a cop. Right? That, that's where that only... Eh, right? And I love talking to those men. Well, I, love, I mean, they I'm don't not necessarily saying, love me, but I love talking just to those saying, men and women. From a point of going to work and coming right. home, your that's biggest the only... danger being caught by the tiger nowadays is that's is the cop. Yeah, or if you're in a bad neighborhood. So you know, if the, you can, guys that hate you. So if you can experience, don't worry, you didn't get an A on your nose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I'm not on TV. No, yeah, if care. you have that experience uh, through a television, right? You're getting those same chemical releases because how many people, when we ask, well, hey, do you relate? to the main character on these TV shows? Well, yeah, of course. That's why I watch it. So it's the same thing. They're being able to experience the outdoors without being outdoors. So one of the stupidest things you could do if you're trying to stay alive in the wild or in any situation is freak out. Yeah, of course. Right? And so after my little stint with an attempt to be with these knuckleheads out of Warm Springs Productions out of, I think, uh, someplace in Montana, they were completely... I, I liked the crew, but I didn't like the director, dude. I figured it out later that he was a snake, maybe. But uh, I'm like, you know, if you if you have this this idea uh, that you're that you're gonna show, why why don't you just let me? Do, since you know nothing about this 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 event why don't you let me show the real thing and then we'll it'll be exciting because we'll get results you'll get to see it happening and he just like kept kept saying yes and then he they cut it all out they take all the reality out of it yeah so they they kept saying well we have to show something that people will watch i said well so there's no responsibility um, in in our world to increase people's knowledge, it's about dumbing down so yeah. it fits. So you, it's, of course. it's it, and I hope I haven't skipped subjects too much, but the you give those monkeys a little cocaine hit when they push the one button, and they will eventually kill themselves. Yeah, and do nothing but push that button. Well, our TV industry is saying, well, we're going to give them what they want. We're going to give them what makes the most money. Yeah. So when I I finally just told them again. Well then, why don't you sell pornography, drugs, and 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 killing devices? Because that's I I think that a gambling might be making some money too. But for sure, sex, drugs, sex, drugs, and addictions of all kinds are making the most money in the world. So why, if it's a if the, if your real bottom line is money, then you're in the wrong industry. You 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 slimy. Uh, Producer. Why can't producers, <laughs> Producer. directors, whatever, right? Well, and they ate, they ate less Stroud up, they ate Cody up, and and we got into it thinking that there was something beautiful going on. Now that said, I've heard good stuff from Callie. Callie's a beautiful, good soul, and she said that they let her shine. Uh, well, I think they let her shine. I think people have been allowed to do that in as much as they could. 
So some people have been able to walk in and out of the lion's den and not get bit in the head at all. I, I'm, I'm still kind of sad because I had such high hopes. And I talked to both of them and they said, you know what? The reason we didn't get messed up is because we listened to all you folks and we went in knowing that they were sharks. So we went swimming with sharks. <laughs> I believed that they were really good people that were going to do what they said they were going to do. But it was a bait and switch. Yeah. Total bait and switch. Anyway, enough of that whiny stuff. I, it, I, I got I've a recovered. To... So, so Les Stroud's the one who didn't do that until they finally, he sold his format to Discovery Channel and they screwed him. That's what they do. They have a panel of, or whatever, a board of 15 people that, you know, figure out how to snake people and for money. And you can't, you know, they can sue you for talking this way, they say. The contract I signed eventually said that they owned everything out to the out of the, into the universe. They own everything in your life. They can come in your they wanted all these all this 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 contract applies from planet Earth all the way out into the universe. And I thought so I got a little blue uh, highlighter pen and I marked out everything on my contract that I disagreed with and I put an X by it and said everything that's in blue I dis, I will not uh legally it's not legally binding because I will not sign it. And they wrote back, just cooperate, Mr. Hawley. This is just going to go in the trash when the show's over anyway. We don't really mean this. I said, well, if you don't mean it, then I don't have to sign it. Yeah, there you go. That's it. I've told them that too. So if it's not that important, <laughs> then leave it alone. Oh, come on. Cooperate yep. with us. So at the end of that shoot of the, the, the No Man's Land thing, show that they did, at the very end, the director goes, hey, there's 29 things that you wouldn't say this entire time. I've got them all written down. Would you just get, do outtakes and just say all these things? I said, no, they're lies. He goes, well, won't you just say them? I said, no, they're lies. They're, I don't want to. What was it trying to get you to say? Stuff like, whoa, man, that was sketchy. Oh, when I'm the B-roll stuff. Hey, okay. you know, there's lions and bears here. I better climb up this ladder to get out of the way from out of this. You know, they just want me to each scene had these things that they wanted me to say. And finally one day they come up and they said, you know, David, just think of these guys in their basements that never get to go out and do anything. They said guys in their basements. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's, that's who your that's who your, your demographic is. So think of these men in their basements that whose wives don't let them watch any TV shows that would have nudity or swearing or trouble or any girly stuff. And you're talking to these guys who are in their camo and they never really get to go out much, but their wives are giving them their one hour in their man cave of watching this oh show. Oh my God. And what they want to see is somebody kill something and eat it. And I said, no, nah, that's not what I signed up for. I was going to show people how to live in the desert the way I know. And you have five other people that are going to do it in the areas they live in. I, th I thought this was going to be the real thing. They said, and then I finally said, oh, I get it. You want me to be a guy that acts like he's David Holliday, but really isn't really me. And they go, yeah. They were all excited. They thought I was telling them like an, an epiphany. Yeah, they and I just looked it. at them and I said, heck no, I, I'm not going to do that. Let's go back. Let's go back to doing real stuff because this is going to be exciting and people are going to learn a lot. Let's just get, let's show the success of actually making it. And they're like, nah. So they're so at the end, the very end of this shot, the whole thing's over. It's a cold day, and everybody's trying to go home. And the guy said, and, and the guy says, hey, couldn't you just cooperate with us? I said, no, it'd be lying. And then I, you're not supposed to look into the camera. I looked exactly into the camera. I even leaned in, stared right in the camera. I said, whoever you people are that are making all these shows, you're really ignorant about real life, especially in the wild. And if you want a good show, you should let us be the ones who make up the scenarios. But quit take making this all lies and then or something like that. They ha they have it all on film. It's probably thrown away. But then I leaned in even closer and says, "But if you're gonna get us to act, start paying us actors' wages." And you know what? The camera people all turned their cameras into the ground. The sound people turned the sound off. And they cheered into the sky and they told me off camera and off. They said, 
we can't be heard cheering you on for what you just said because we'll lose our jobs. But they were really happy somebody finally told them. Well, I, maybe they get that all the time. But in their life, that was a pivotal moment where somebody finally told them the truth. Well, I don't know what that means. It means it's a sad industry or whatever. But if making money, if you, if you have to lie to be a good car salesman or that, you know, I learned that's not, that's not true. Uh, can I finish this point? Uh, you can cool finish way? any point you want. Okay. Go for it. I got the wonderful opportunity to take the world's most successful and wealthiest salesman out. His son and he wanted to go learn how to make fire from the guy who taught Bear Grylls, who was the most ingenuous person I've ever had to do anything with in my life that I was aware of. I mean, I've probably been with more than that, but he kind of, you know, he seemed like a pretty good-hearted guy in some ways, but he, he, he acted like he didn't know he was lying all the time. But I have a feeling maybe he did. He was being paid to act like a survival guy. He knew nothing about it. Couldn't even use a knife or anything at all. So maybe he was being honest in that he was being paid to act like a survival person. But to later on claim that you have a, a school and that you're teaching survival skills, that's kind of a lie. So I don't know. I'm not sure how much of a liar that dude was. But I was his consultant for one show, right? And the, the point I'm getting back to here is that I have this man out with his son that want to learn how to make a friction fire from the guy who taught Bear Grylls because the kid loved Bear Grylls. So his father, who's very wealthy, gets a helicopter. And Dan Baird and I, Dan Baird of, of California Survival School, who's a very good teacher, we fly this man and his son, or the helicopter flies us all out to a place off the coast of California onto an island and drops us off. Jeez. And we have a wonderful time, except for Dan Baird's puking in his sleeping bag every day because he's sick and the father is. The kid and I wander off every day doing the things the kid had been dreaming about, except for he never told me all the things he wanted to learn. We were just doing what I thought we could do in that environment every day. So I wasn't sick. He wasn't sick. And the dad would just lay there in his bag all green and, you know, sick. And then Dad Baird was having the same problem, whatever it was. Well, at the end of the trip, we're waiting for, uh, by the way, I call, there's a thing called a diosidencia. Mm -hmm. It's a God-based coincidence. We did everything that kid wanted. We even... Something had harmed a rattlesnake, and it was dying on strike mode. And we ate it, skinned it, and ate it. We did all sorts of things. And he didn't tell me that that was one of his dreams, was to eat a lizard and eat a rattlesnake. All that. But everything we were dreaming about, or he was dreaming about, he did. So I fulfilled his needs. And his dad knew that, but I didn't. So when we're waiting for the helicopter to come in, the dad goes, Hey, Mr. Holiday, you did a really good job. And among other things, he pulled out hundreds of $100 bills and fanned them like a turkey tail and says, hey, go get you something at, at the uh, Twin Harbor store. And I said, I just want a ginger ale. <laughs> he said, keep the receipts. And I said, no. Nah. Ten grand. So I didn't, I didn't touch the, the fan tail of, of $100 bills. Wow. I just said, thank you, sir. And then he said, you know, you did a really good job at what you do. I just want you to know that my son wanted to do this and I never been I don't go camping I don't like camping I grew up really poor and my family didn't have the you know the money or the lifestyle to actually keep us in diapers and a lot of things like I it made it sound like his parents just weren't attentive or whatever and he yeah. didn't so he promised himself he was going to make a million dollars before he was 20 he made the million and thought that's not very much money I'm going to keep going and I asked him, I said, well, sir, to what do you attribute your success? And this was what he said, which proves to me that television doesn't have to be phony. This is one of those things. He said, I am successful because I've never sold anything I haven't tried and believe in. 
and I've never lied. And, and my company believes in honesty and transparency. So there's all these people that talk about, well, you know, rich people have to screw somebody to get on top. He didn't. He got on top of the sales world by never selling anything he hadn't tried out himself or knew enough about to actually believe in and use. And he never had to lie to any of his co-workers. Honesty and transparency was what creates the longest-term actual success. So at that point, I think he'd been the best salesman in the world for five years in a row. And then he kind of told me that some people will be on the plane reading some packet on some medical product they're going to sell the next day, and they'll actually do the whole number where they put the white jacket on, pocket protectors and the black rim glasses, and talk like a medical professional. And the next day they're selling something else, and they'll show up. They've learned about the product on the plane from the packet, and they know how to repeat it. So they know how to act like somebody who knows something. And that's what TV still has. has TV's gained the reputation of, of being phonies who act like they know something. There you go. And That's so it. the people are quit watching them. Everybody's watching YouTube or something else. Yeah. They're listening to I, I, this format, right? So I, I told those guys, I said, you, you have some old thing that came from the, 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 the Greek times when the, you know, the, the sad mask and the happy mask, and you got to have a drama, you got to have a trouble, and then you got to solve it. And that's television, that's good. People watch that. I said, well, none of, the, none of my friends do. Mm-mm. Nobody I hang out with in this entire world does. So who are they talking about? Is there more zombies out there than we're or Do we live such an isolated life? You and I and all the rest of us in this gathering? <laughs> yeah, we do. Do we live such an isolated life that that we don't realize that there's zombies on the other side of the fence everywhere we go? I don't believe that because when I look them in the eye and talk to them at Walmart or someplace like that or Costco, they either look offended that a hippie thinks he's equal to them or they look really glad that somebody finally said hi to them. You know, there's people that think they're above everyone else. That's the biggest lie on the planet. The second biggest is they're worse than everybody else. But the average person's pretty sane and pretty healthy and just likes to meet somebody that recognizes their value. That's what I'm seeing all over the planet. Not the thing we're being told. We got to feed them low-quality entertainment because that's what they're asking for. How do you know? Well, that's who's buying the most stuff on the ads. Oh, so your whole reason for ed- this wonderful educational capacity is to make money. And any education that squeaks through, that's just a side note. When the whole thing could be about educating the world to become a better bunch of people, and the money wouldn't be the main reason. Public te- television wouldn't be owned by one part, political party or the other like it used to be. Public radio could belong to everybody equally, not just one political party over another. It could be something that everybody could equally participate in and we could have lots of venues about lots of perspectives on all issues. Yeah. Well, that's boring. That's for like college professors, us cool kids who want to, you know, screw, drink, and snort coke and drive our cars real fast. We don't watch those shows. Well, okay, if you got the money and you want to spend the money on that, at least have a channel for them too, but don't have just a bunch of channels that have nothing. We should have be able to have a channel for every little niche. Yeah. But that said, why am I so bothered with TV? Because I grew up in a world that was highly affected by it. And I was lied to my whole life and I had to recover from that. So, you know, if I was if if I was an alcoholic but wasn't drinking anymore, I'd still be talking about recovery. So I'm an American that's recovering from a really bunch of bad ideas. Yeah. And that's part of my health now is not participating, but I still need to talk about it because that's my, that's my generation. My generation are the ones. So there's kids now that don't have to say the whine like this because it didn't happen to them. So yeah, I got raped. I'm not afraid to admit I got raped by bad ideas 
and television was the main deliverer of those bad ideas. Yeah. So I don't think people get well by denying that it happened and then they don't help others protect themselves by saying that doesn't exist. So, yeah, I'm being a whiner right now. Maybe. But I think I'm just being honest like that guy was to me. Transparency and honesty. So why do I keep coming to these gatherings? They keep asking me. And people keep showing me back by their response to me that what I'm saying and doing is beneficial to my people. That's everybody. Not My people is everybody on this planet, not Americans. Uh, I come from uh, the Bahana clan or the white-skinned clan, but there's a yellow-skinned clan and a red-skinned clan and a black-skinned clan, and then there's those of us who are part of all of those because we've got ancestral gene pools back to all of them. So we're kind of the, I don't know, when we get old enough, we have gray hair. So I'm the gray clan, right? Yeah. So, so we're from all over the planet, and that's my people. And so I'm talking, saying, the more time you'll spend in nature, and the more time you'll have fun in nature, and the more time you'll actually see that it's actually the basis of your entire cellular makeup, uh, atomic and nuclear and all the other, everything you're made of is, is something that got there from eating something that came out of the ground or supported by something it ate out of the ground. So we're made up out of this place, this beautiful yeah. Mother Earth. So to me, that's why I'm still coming and that's what I'm doing here. Uh, still trying to share and learn and meet other people who have that, that spark that want to educate young people and old people and everybody else that there's a way to be here that's a lot healthier and happier. And this has been a fun ride, by the way. Yeah. I've been doing this professionally since <laughs> I was 18 and I'm 66. I don't want to stop. But I also just don't want to keep doing it thinking I'm still useful. I still need to see the input from the people I'm talking to that what I am sharing and what they're sharing is still alive and valid. Yeah. In, in my, so it's not from memory. Not only are they getting me, but I'm getting them. So it's a two-way thing. And so I've talked a lot. I think I fully, fully covered your first question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got 24 more to go here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, what are some of your favorite skills to teach now? Yeah, that's been a transition. I was pretty, believe it or not, I was a very shy young man in many ways. And I hung out with even shyer friends. And then I went on a mission for my church when I was 19. And I came back kind of with a valve broke. I was kind of mad at God actually for a second. Like, why are you want me to talk to strangers about such personal things? But if you want me to open up my mouth and not be afraid of human beings... Because there's a scripture that says, you know, don't be, fear, don't be afraid of men. Don't be afraid of people. Mm -hmm. Share my gospel. Don't be afraid. I said, okay. I guess if I want to pretend like I believe in this, I guess I better start believing it. And I said, guess I got to quit being afraid. So I just started going to people's doors, telling them the truth about what I thought and believed. Which is really scary because nobody wanted to hear us. Nobody pretty much wanted to surround at all most of the time. Once in a while. But I got over that fear. And when I got back home, I decided, well, what do I really believe in? Why don't I not be afraid of that? Whatever it is. And I've been that way pretty much ever since. I think there's ways to be more gentle or, or not have to share it all the time. But when somebody asks, I'm not going to go, well, you know, well, I don't know. I'm going to say, yeah. And if I change my mind about that, Five days later, says, man, I was so wrong. I really used to think this. And so when you're talking about what do I teach now, I used to really love to teach the skills, the physical skills on how to be in the world as a Stone Age person surviving on the land. So Stone Age survival skills. It's the book I found in Guatemala. I wanted to learn how to live like our ancestors. 
and I got pretty good at it. Now, <laughs> we spent all day finding rocks on the ground, grinding them up on other harder rocks and making paint, and we painted our faces and our hands because it was fun to be together. We got to show all the colors that come out of the dirt on, on the piece of land we're on and beautify ourselves and have fun. And it was about being together and doing something together. And it probably has no practical skills in terms of staying alive or being fed. But it's probably the same reason you put pinstripes on your on your lowrider or, or, or a, a beautiful picture of, of uh, the Aztec man holding his Aztec queen on the on the hoodie or lowrider. It just feels so good when you see it. Yeah, that's a life skill. Being happy to be here, being happy and involved and excited about life. That's a survival skill. I would so, agree. So I'm more interested now in people and what these do for us than I am in the actual skill set. And, and that took a long time. I was probably in my 50s before I started really catching on that. You know, when I spend hours showing some skill set, like we go out on the land and make traps, I get about five or six students. But if I get up and start talking about my experiences... As a survival instructor, I might get 50 or 60 people show up with their notebooks. And I'll say, don't you want to go do something? Oh, no, we just want information. So sometimes I think I'm doing a disservice, mm. just like TV could be doing. That's I'm giving them what they're asking for instead of... So sometimes I'd rather do a class with three or four people who want to go out and do something. And then go back and get our materials, go out and turn that, and then come back to a shady spot and make something useful. Yeah. Rather than than talking about the idea. Because if I do a symposium on uh, preparedness, I might get 50, 60 people. But if I say, we're going to walk out and learn how to make something off the land with no metal tools, they're like, well, that sounds like work. They don't show up. So the talkers are still making the most impact. And the doers generally don't get a big crowd. Now, this little gathering is so beautiful that we're all small classes. Yeah, there's a lot of classes that have one person at them today, and some of us teachers who are kind of tired and want to go to somebody else's class and let them talk and learn from them, we're like, I hope nobody shows up at my class today because then I can just go do something else. So a lot of us have been teaching for so long that I think we'd liked to just maybe go be part of somebody else's class. Yeah, and of I course. love going to Phillips thing or anybody Jonathan's, but. Uh, what I love doing now is not so much what we're teaching, it's who we're with. Well, the activity doesn't seem to be as important as the community. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. That said, this kind of learning doesn't happen at Denny's as well as it does out in the wild. So there's <laughs> still places <laughs> and environments that are more healthy for the human way of being than others. So yeah. we, we can't do this at the, at the Marriott or the Hilton on the 15th floor having a seminar about primitive skills in the wild because you're talking about it all the time. Where here you can just go out and see it and be it and in it while you're, while you're learning. Yeah. And, you know, you've, you're from a school that, that actually has that word right in, the, in it, in the title of it. Yep. That this is a we, we were born into a university of the universe, and what we make and who our society has become because of our tools is an equal part or an important part of that because we're part of this hive. We're the animal that was going to do that, but we're also the animal that's the most likely to kill ourselves by trying to be comfortable and have convenience and make it easier for me to kill you and impossible for you to kill me. So the atom bomb is really handy for those who dropped it. It's terrible for those who get it dropped on them. So when you say advancements in technology, that means I can sit here with a machine gun and mow down 50 guys, even though they're better, stronger warriors, but I can pull a trigger because somebody else invented the thing I'm pulling the trigger on. I don't have to be a good at anything but be good at aiming a killing tool. So that makes me a better warrior? Not really. It makes me a better killer. 
Yeah. And warrior used to mean something different a long time mm -hmm. ago. So even even all of our sacred things are no not sacred anymore. I would agree with that. We're too. living. There's a man who wrote a book called In the Absence of the Sacred. It's the same guy that wrote the, I think, a nine reasons for the abolition of television or the abolishing of. Anyway, uh, <laughs> go look these books up. They're important. I can't remember the author right now. That's terrible. But uh, I'm not. I'm not a book guy. I'm not a book learner guy. I'm gonna go do it. But that's probably what I teach different now than when I was younger. Is although I can still do the skills, the story behind it and what it's doing for us is more important than the activity. And if you're way into going and doing it, go learn the way I did. Go find books on it. I never met anybody that talked about this stuff till I was pretty old. Yeah. So if you want it, there's more information out there than ever before. But I think it's almost like this uh, having friends on Facebook. You have more friends and you're lonelier than ever. There's more easy access to information and people are kind of dumber than ever. Yeah. Would you say that it's, I would say, I would say, I would agree with what I'm about to ask. Would you agree that it's better to go to the skills gatherings than it is to survival school classes? Hmm. Yes, here's why. Because you'll meet all the survival school teachers. and You'll meet all those people who are trying to get you to come to their school. or And then you'll meet those happy people who just want to share and don't care. They're not looking for money. They're looking. They're geeks. Right. About the subject matter. Right. Have I showed you how to, how to fletch arrows with only two feathers? It's a Cherokee feather style. And I learned it from Steve Watts. And look how well they fly. And, and, and you know, two hours later, they're still talking about fletching and turkey feathers. And, 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 <laughs> it's and true. The next day, they're still like, watch this. Come over, make one of these. And then you go shoot them and they go, whoa, that went right exactly where I shot it. That's a, that's a good system. They go, yes, it is, isn't it? And, and now let's go try the tri-fletch. And there's actually a four-fletch arrow too. And, and pretty soon, you know, and, and, and I'm one of those geeks about every one of those subjects. And one of my geek things is that people did paint everything they own. Why? Because you can see it after you shot it. Mm. It's the flashiest thing out there. And if you've spent six hours making an arrow, straightening it, then making the point for another hour and then fletching it for another two hours and you shoot it off and it matches all the rest of the land you just shot it into, it's gone. But when you brighten it up and put all sorts of blingy colors on it, oh, paint it up. Paint. You know what we're naturally able to see often is dangerous snakes and poisonous snakes of all kinds. So if you paint it like a coral snake, your body will naturally spot that pattern yeah and those are very easy colors to recreate in nature right and so i've I, that's the kind of geek out i get is like you do it long enough pretty soon you find out why things are shaped the way they're shaped yeah and that actually comes down all the way to botany and geology and everything else because things are shaped the way they're shaped because of what they're doing even in the inanimate world we call it I'm yeah. more like a native that believes that all these people are people. There's the rock people, the cloud people, the sky people, the plant people. They're all people. We're the only people people. Everybody else is something else. Yeah. But I actually believe that things are shaped exactly the way they're shaped for specific reasons, all the way down to the Lego building blocks <laughs> of the universe. <laughs> they attach together quite well, and they look pretty intelligently designed to me after all this study yeah i would concur there's some intelligent design to all this so everything kind of fits so every flower every plant every person you know i don't want to get sexy but male or female if you look at somebody that's like really functions well as a human being every one of their parts is shaped like it is because it does something mm -hmm. and they're kind of attractive yeah i would agree right? with that yeah all right, all right, I got a couple okay. more questions so for you. Yeah. Are you hungry? I've been hungry since I started. <laughs> before you ready to go eat? <laughs> yeah, but I'm good. I'll, I'll, I can, well, I will respect your process until you let no, me know. No, it's man. it's it's six o'clock. Uh, we've been going for an hour, and I'm yeah. I mean, I have a million questions, but you know me. But um, real quick, are, do you know what icky guy is? No. Oh, okay.
okay, see, so everybody who listens to this podcast knows that uh, I talk about Ikigai a lot, and I'm I'm always uh, excited to teach people new things as you are, and to promote uh, healthiness and happiness, and and that was what my mom always wanted for me growing up. She's like, I don't care what you do in life. She goes, I, I just want you mom. to be. I haven't met her, but I love your mom. Happy and healthy, yeah. and this is what I chose to do with my life, which is be a complete nerd and a geek for nature. But ikigai is a Japanese word that means the Zen purpose for being. Oh, wow. And it's a quadrant of Oh, yes, four. I've been doing that my whole life. I just didn't know the word. See, exactly. I'm <laughs> yeah. telling you. But this is it. It's it's that which the world needs. It's that which you are good at, right? Has a, Have a skill for. It's yeah. that which you have a passion for. And finally, it is that which you can be paid for, right? Or or benefit, reciprocate from the community. Make a living from. Yeah, exactly. Support so that's, yourself. That's the Zen purpose for being. And I always tell people, you know, when they want to join the school, I say, well, you know, what's the ultimate goal? And I just tell them, Ikigai. Like, I want to help these kids find their Zen purpose for being. Because to start this podcast off, I said... I want to give people what I didn't have as a child growing up. And that was the opportunity to uh, explore the world on its terms. You know, going to a zoo is different from sneaking up behind a deer. I'd rather you know? get next to a, an ant than go to a zoo. I know. And so yeah. I'm I'm just, David, I'm so, so thankful that you sat down with us to tell your story. And I know there's thousands more that... But let me just tell you this, listeners, if you if you want to hear more, come to these gatherings, come hang out with us. David is, you'll, you'll never be able to understand how incredible a human is by listening to this podcast. But if you're listening to this podcast, probably because you've already met him and you know, and you want to hear more. So, That's a compliment. Thank you, sir. Yeah. David, I appreciate your time. We'll look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye.